For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have saved us, not as individuals, but you have brought us into a family. We pray uh, that you would teach us what it means to be a family together as we look to your perfect, holy word. But Lord, we need you to be our teacher, to apply these ancient words into our context here in, in Bellingham and Whatcom County and Christ Church. And so we open our hearts, our minds to you that you would teach us. So give us your presence, give us your wisdom, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we are talking about the topic of community, which I think is a pretty important topic. You know, as you think about your spiritual life, after simply knowing Christ, knowing Jesus... Probably the second most significant thing for most of us when we think about our spiritual life is our shared spiritual life, our community, the people we know that we walk alongside one another in following Christ. And yet, as the pastor of this church, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if maybe 70% of our church would say they feel probably less community, less friendship, less connection than they would like. And would be they would hope for for their Christian life, and you might hear that and say, "Well, wow, there's 
70% of our church feels like they want more connections, more friends. Why don't those 70% just get together and be friends and be community with one another? Well, it's not that simple. Love and trust uh, is not an easy or natural thing. If it was easy and natural, our world would be filled with it. Uh, we don't know necessarily, naturally, how to bond with one another. And so the question is, how do we become the kind of people who both know how to receive community? That's something not all of us, maybe we don't know how to do that, how to receive community. And also be a community that gives community to one another. How do we become that kind of family? Well, this passage, I think, has some profound insights into that. And it begins in verse 13 by saying these words, For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. When you and I were baptized, if you've been baptized, it had a vertical component to it. It had to do with our relationship to God. But this says that it also has a horizontal component when you're baptized. You're baptized into a family, into a community. And the word that Paul uses to describe our community is a body. We are a collection of strangely different organs and appendages. You know, you think about all the different parts of a body. They're very strangely, you know, a foot is a very strange thing. And, or an ear is a very strangely shaped thing. And he says, that's how you all are. You're very weird, but very necessary to be brought together to make a body. And, you know, I've often thought about what a strange project the church is. That Jesus takes all of us who, you know, we may not have known each other at all except for this church. And he takes us. We appear to be a random group of people that Jesus has stuck together and he says, you are now going to be a family. And I think, who else in the world is trying to do something like this? I mean, every other community, you know, there's a shared hobby, there's a shared lifestyle, there's shared interests. That, and, and it just seems to make sense that those people go together. But we are, seem to be this monster of different things that just seem to be randomly stuck together. But what's fascinating about this passage is that Paul says that that's, that's all backwards. A body is not a monster. A body is a beautiful, harmonious complexity and in fact, uh, what he says here in verse 17 is he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And Paul says, what would it be like if the whole body was eyeball? You know, what's the monster? You know, picture up here a giant eyeball or a human being. Which one's the monster? The eyeball is the monster. <laughs> And if we're all the same and stuck together, the group of people who are all the same is actually the monster. And he says the different, divergent people that are brought together in Christ is something beautiful. It's the beautiful image of God. And so what we need to internalize is that a massive part of our spiritual life, our baptism, is learning to be a part of a community, a body. And so how do we do that? How do we receive community? How do we give community to each other? And that's a big topic, but we're going to look at three things in particular from this text. And this is what they are. That receiving community has to do with how we see ourselves. Giving community has to do with how we see others. And both of these things come from how we see God. Okay, so three things this morning. Receiving community has to do with how we see ourselves. Giving community has to do with how we see others. 
Both of them come from how we see God. So first point this morning is this. Receiving community has to do with how we see ourselves. And you'll notice in this passage um, that Paul has a foot talking to itself. You see that there in verse 14 where it says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Now, what we're getting here is a glimpse into the inner dialogue of the foot. You know, it sees the hand. It says, oh, hands make things. And the heart is pumping blood everywhere. And the nose gets all these beautiful aromas that it gets to experience. And it says, I'm, I'm just a foot. No one notices me. I, you know, I just get walked on all day. And, you know, I'm not like these other special parts of the body. And he says, clearly I'm not like them, so... I probably don't belong. Now, I think many of us can relate to the inner dialogue of the foot. We come here on Sunday, we see other people. You know, maybe they're talking to each other, maybe they're serving God in certain ways, and we start analyzing it. We say, I'm not like, th- I'm not like them, I'm not like them, I'm not like them. And the next conclusion is, I don't belong. And the Bible recognizes that self-talk, this inner dialogue, is an extremely powerful part of our lives. So, for example, Psalm 42, as the psalmist talks to his own soul, and he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? It's like asking questions. It's like a conversation happening inside his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And what this means is that all of us are preaching to ourselves all the time. You're constantly saying to your own soul, to your own life, this is what the world's like. This is what you're like. This is what people are like. This is what God is like. We're constantly telling ourselves that. And we have sermons going on inside our head all the time. Now, they may not be true sermons. And what these verses are saying, that those sermons in your head are the strongest things that determine your experience of community and how you receive community. The sermons going on in your head are the strongest things that determine your experience of community and how you receive it. And if you want to experience community in a place like this, your self-talk, your inner dialogue needs attention. Because you see how Paul answers the foot, right? Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, again, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Paul says, just because the foot talks about himself in this way, it doesn't mean it's true. And, you know, by the way, our inner dialogues that have so much to do with our community uh, can be triggered or set off by something very small. I mean, you could have one person in a whole community like this make a comment that, uh, that could color your view of the whole community. One interaction where someone says a harsh word or ignores you and your head gets running and you could say, this is what the whole community is like. This is what my whole life is like. This is what Christ is like. This is what Christianity is like. This is what my faith is like. And it may be true that you actually do have community, you, uh, that you are not letting yourself see it. And when it comes to the church, one of the things that really can impact our inner dialogue is 
that we have a dream. We have a vision about what a church should be, what community should be like. And that's a big part of the sermon that we give in our own minds. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I put a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on page five in your bulletin. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, uh, a pastor in Germany under, living under the Nazis. And he started a seminary. We had a bunch of Christians who came together and lived with one another. And he wrote a book called Life Together about what it's like to live in community. This is one of the things he says. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Being afoot, already I feel like I don't belong, combine that with a wish dream of what a community should be, this is a recipe for disappointment and disillusionment. And so our first point is this, is that the receiving of a community, the, the true body of Christ, has to do with how we see ourselves. It has to do with our inner dialogue. And the sermons going on our heads, and those sermons demand attention. Now, I know for me at various times in my life, these inner dialogues have been particularly strong. You know, I've felt at times like my mind is like a motor that just keeps running and running and running. It's like you can't even stop the thoughts. And I, at certain times in my life, I would have this practice where I would just look at a table and I, you know, especially the corner, I say, this table is real. Because, you know, my head, all the thoughts in your head, they're not even real. You don't even know if they're true. And so I was like, I need something real, like a corner that I can feel. And it would get me outside of myself, get me stop thinking about myself. And I think that something like that practice about not just thinking about things that are outside of myself, not just seeing things that are outside of myself, but seeing people that are outside of myself, is a valuable practice also for community. And this leads to our second point, not just that receiving community has to do with how we see ourselves, how we talk about ourselves in our inner dialogue, but giving community has to do with how we see others. And of course, how you, know, how you talk about yourself and how you know, is deeply tied to how you talk about others. And you'll notice you know, that this passage begins by talking about the foot talking about himself, you know, talking to himself. And then it shifts in verse 21 and says, the eye cannot say to the hands, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, now they're talking not to themselves, they're talking to someone, the other parts of the body. And the nature of self-talk informs the nature of how you talk about others. So the question is, how, how should we view others? How should we give community? And two words stood out to me in this passage, honor and care. Honor and care. Make community. Let's 
Let's look at each of those. First, what is honor? Verse 22, Paul says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, when the Apostle Paul uses this image of a body, he's actually borrowing from some ancient thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, talked about cities, you know, the polis, a society is like a body. You know that Bellingham is a place where we all play a part in working together to make the city work. And so uh, they said, you know, it's like a body that has been orchestrated divinely into a great chain of being. And we each have a different place that we play in that ordering. So there are kings, and there are princes, and there are nobles, and there are peasants, and there are slaves. And whatever role you were born into, you need to kind of embrace your role in that society. And so this vision of the body was used to encourage those who are in the lower classes to bestow honor on those who are in the higher classes. But it's interesting that Paul takes up this picture of the body as an analogy for the church, and he turns the whole thing upside down. He does the exact opposite of what the ancient world does. It's not used so that the lower classes would honor the higher classes, but what does it say in verse 23? And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. This is how Jesus' kingdom works. It's upside down. You know, first shall be last. Last shall be first. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And this is the nature of his kingdom is that the, the, the weaker parts of the body are given honor. And then he goes on and says in the second part of verse 23, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Now, I was trying to understand that verse as I was working through this. One commentator helped me. This is Richard Pratt. He, he explains it this way. He says, People take great care to treat the unpresentable private portions of their body with special modesty as they give comparatively little special treatment to their presentable parts. The church should behave similarly, going out of its way to honor and exalt those people whom we tend to overlook. The church should go out of its way to honor and exalt those people whom we tend to overlook. The giving of honor is an immensely important part of being a community. If we're going to be a community, the body of Christ, honor is important. Now, in the ancient world, honor was, you know, kind of everywhere in society, and it often took on kind of a ceremonial, formal manner about it. You know, there were all kinds of ways that the lower classes would show their honor to the upper classes. And I think, you know, living in Bellingham is a very informal kind of place. I long for those kinds of things, kind of ceremonial kind of expressions. And I think probably something, reading this passage, I think our church can improve on is having ceremonial formal times of honor, not just for people who are visible, not just for leaders in the church, but all people who are serving in the church, maybe in less visible ways, and praising and encouraging and exalting and bestowing honor on everyone in our congregation. I think that's something that our leadership could think, could think about and work, work on. But honor also is informal. It's speaking words of encouragement to each other. It's seeing a glory in one another, and naming that. And if you want to both give community to others and find yourself attracting community, learn to honor people, 
Learn to praise people. Learn to encourage people with your words. Because, you know, we all know what that's like. We have people in our lives who we spend time with. And when we're with them, they're not talking about what they're interested in all the time. They seem to be interested in us. And we end up talking, you know, because they, they, they're so fascinated with who we are. And what do we want to do? We want to be with them. And so that's how we attract Community as well is showing an interest, opening our eyes and seeing other people, seeing the glory in them and naming it, asking questions, showing an interest in one another. So the first part of being the body of Christ, honoring each other. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Esteem one another better than yourselves. The second word he uses is care. Because Paul says, you know, if you're a diverse church body, you know, you're this random group of people that Jesus has stuck together, there are really two options for you. And the two options are in verse 25. It says that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So if you're a different group of people who are put together, it's either you're going to divide and you're going to form your little groups of people that are just like me, or we're going to learn to care for one another. And caring for one another, you know, how do you, when you think of caring for each other, what do you think of? You know, maybe doing acts of kindness for each other. I think that's a significant part of caring for each other. But Paul takes it a step deeper. It's what he says, it's how he describes it in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's a powerful statement of saying we actually experience our lives. I experience what you're experiencing in your life. The anxiety and stress that you have in your life, I take it into my own life and psyche and body, and I help carry it with you. That is part of what it means to care for one another, is we carry these things together. If your life is hard, then it's hard for me as well. And we've had that in our church the last couple years. When people get sick or die... We all feel it. And many of you who have gone through difficult things, the most valuable thing is that someone was just in it with you. They can't take it away. They can't make it better. They can't rescue you. But this is why we need the whole body, all of us, need to carry each other's burdens. Because otherwise, we're going to have a few people who carry the griefs of everyone, and they're going to be overwhelmed. And the amount of grief in a community like this size is a substantial amount of grief. And so that means that we need to know each other. We need to know each other's stories. We need to know what's happening in each other's story. We have to have an interest in each other's lives to know these things so that we can carry them with one another. Now, I know that it can happen that maybe for some of you, you'd say, well, you know what? I, I do carry people's griefs in this church, other people's griefs, other people's stress, anxiety, sorrows. And then it came time where I was going through it, and no one was there. No one showed up. Now, if that's you, I'm, all I can say to you is I'm sorry. That is not our hope as a church. And we hope that everyone, when you go through your dark valleys, someone will be with you, and it won't always happen. I hope it does. But, you know, I was talking to Jesse Clausen also this week. Jesse's our women's discipleship lead for our church and telling her about, about my sermon, what I was thinking about. 
And she had also said, just reflecting on her, her own life, that often those who are the best at pouring out for others, best at you know, carrying others' burdens, can be the worst at asking other people for help and say, I need someone to carry this with me. And she was talking about specifically about being a mom. You know, when you're a mom, you're constantly caring to needs. And you don't wait for people to ask you. You're just like, the kid needs help, I'm on it. You know, my family needs help, people. I'm always, I see it and I act on it. And so you're expecting that people will just see what I'm going through and they'll be on it. And maybe they might just need you to say, hey, I'm going through a hard time. Could you be present with me? We may need to do that for one another. We may need to ask. The same is true in the church. Do I assume other people will see my needs without me saying anything? So giving and receiving community go hand in hand. And they come from how we see ourselves. It has a lot to do with our inner dialogue, our visions of what a church is supposed to be, how we talk about ourselves, and how we see others. Bestowing honor on each other, sharing each other's burden through care. So the question is, how do we as a church become a community like that? This is our last point. That both of these things come from how we see God. God himself makes us into that kind of community. And I think the loudest thing that this passage says about God's role in our community is that God has chosen us to be here. This is the biblical doctrine of election. You see it in verse 18 where it says, But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose and again, down in verse 24, the second part of verse 24, he says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the, mem- the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may care for one another. And so the reason you are here in this church is because God chose for you to be here. You know, when you tell the story about how you came to our church, may it, why do you think you were here? Maybe you thought, well, I saw the website and this church agrees with what I believe in, so I went to that church. Or you know, maybe a friend invited me and that's why I'm here. Or I'm Presbyterian and I go to Presbyterian churches. That's why I'm here. Paul says you're wrong. <laughs> Those aren't the reasons you're here. You are here because God composes the body and he has carefully, thoughtfully, and intentionally placed you here. And you might wonder, you know, well, why why has God done that? Why has God chosen you to be a part of this community and not someone else? And, you know, on the one hand, we don't know the answer to that. God, in his own mysterious grace and purposes, you know, acts according to his own ways. But on the other hand, this passage does say something about why he's chosen you to be here. And one thing I love about this passage, you know, it's describing all the body, parts of the body they're talking to each other, right? You know, the, the foot's talking about the hand and the ear's talking about the eye. And they're all talking to one another. And then there's this, added this little line in verse 21. You'll see what it says. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The head says to the foot, I need you. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. And who's the foot? The one that no one sees, that no one thinks is important, the dirty one that feels like they don't belong. 
And the head of the church says, I need you. Jesus, the head of the church, says, I need you. And there is nothing stronger to give you a sense of belonging than for the head, the leader, the king to say, don't leave because I need you. And I, I experienced this in high school. I played baseball in high school and uh, tried out my senior year, got on the team, and I spent the whole season, the whole regular season, I, I was a pitcher. I didn't pitch one inning. One pitch the whole season. And so we came, was, the playoffs were coming. I'm like, you know, if I didn't play in the regular season, I'm probably not going to play in the playoffs. So I went, to, I had a job at Starbucks. And I went and told my coach, you know, maybe I should just go work at Starbucks and make some money. I'm not going to play. All three of the coaches took me individually into the locker room and they sat me down and they said, you're not going to quit. We're going into the playoffs and we need you and you are a part of this team. And I wasn't the best pitcher. I couldn't hit. I was not fast. I was the heart of the team. <laughs> I was the cheerleader. And we needed the heart, you know, the soul as we went into the playoffs. And he said, we need you. And what do you think I did? I stayed on the team. I was, you know, the coach wants me. You know, I'm important. Jesus says to the person who feels the most like they don't belong and they have nothing to offer, I need you and I have purposes with you. And that is ultimately what forms us as a community. It's not anyone's vision or wish dream about what community should be. It's not even our effectiveness in honoring and caring for each other. We are here because Jesus, the head of the church, has called us according to his own purposes. He has placed us here and said that he has need of us. And as long as we keep that central, we will become the kind of community he intends us to be. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these hopeful words that carefully and intentionally you know each one of our stories carefully placed us here. That we might honor others, care for others, and become like you. We pray that you would mature us, grow us in understanding what it means to be a body that knows one another, esteems one another, loves one another. But also, would you keep central the knowledge that you want us here? And so we belong. May that truth live in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.